a painting is obviously an object, but it is, it's also a record of an event. And I'd like to show the entire event in the final painting. I want, to, I, I want every intervention of paint on canvas to be visible at the end, if, if at all possible. Hi, and welcome to episode 92 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stoljar, and my guest today is Tim Maguire, one of Australia's leading contemporary artists. Approaching one of his paintings is a mesmerising experience. First of all, they're big. A single exquisite flower could be the sole subject of a work over four metres in length. And as you get closer to the work, you start to realise its complexity, that it's made up of multiple layers of transparent paint. You'll see the large brush strokes and you'll notice expressive splotches and splashes and you're going to hear all about how they are created in this episode. But painting is only part of his practice. He's been involved in printmaking throughout his career and creates sensational light box works and films. His work is held in most, if not all, Australian major public collections, dozens of corporate and private collections, and he's exhibited in over 80 solo shows around the world, from France, Germany and the UK, to New York and China, and of course, right across Australia. I saw his current show last week at Martin Brand Contemporary in Sydney, a brilliant show which we talk about in this conversation. And with COVID restrictions eased in New South Wales, there's no need to make an appointment with the gallery. So if you're in Sydney and are able to, go and see it. It's on until 21 June 2020. As usual, all the works we talk about on the podcast are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. We pick up this conversation at a point where Tim, at 25, was awarded an Australia Council Travelling Scholarship, having finished two postgraduate degrees. He was looking forward to using the scholarship to study in America, but not all went according to plan. So I got a nice big cheque from the Australia Council for a travelling scholarship, and at the age of 20. Um, five, I got my first passport and I got my first um, plane ticket out of the country. Um, and I was supposed to be going to Rhode Island School of Design, which is a fantastic art school, RISD, um, to do a master's, which I was excited about for lots of reasons. And I knew people who'd been studying there. And by the time I got to LA, um, so I bought a very cheap plane ticket that took me via Fiji and Tahiti and Honolulu. I discovered that um, Paul Keating had floated the Australian dollar while I was in the air and my 10,000 Australian dollars were worth a lot less than they were when I got on the plane. And by the time I got to RISD, they said to me, look, um, honestly, we're not going to let you start. You don't have enough money. As it was, it was touch and go, but now you'll be spending um, 48 hours a week in the cleaning the toilets you know so yeah. there's no way you can you can't even pay cover your tuition costs let alone your living costs so so and I was in this bind and uh, I rang the Australia Council and they said um well we can't give you any more money and I, I was like well yeah but aren't I supposed to be studying and they said well whatever you know you're on your own and you know have a nice holiday or, <laughs> and that seems such a waste but I I, I ended up in um in Dusseldorf at the Kunst Academy. 
basically because they, they, they didn't charge tuition fees and I had remembered Tony Cragg, the British sculptor, had been out for the Biennale in Sydney and he'd given a talk at Sydney College and he'd mentioned that maybe there could be some kind of uh, student exchange between um, Sydney College and the uh, Dusseldorf Kunstakademy on that basis that there were no fees, etc. Um, and I asked Adrian Hall, my, I rang Adrian Hall from from Providence, Rhode Island and said, what do you think? And he's, he called Tony Cragg in Dusseldorf and Tony Cragg said, yeah, come. Tell him to come. We'll sort it out. So off I went. You know, no, no German, never been in <laughs> Europe before, never been out of the country, did it really, and, you know, no idea what I was heading into and it was pretty kind of shambolic. But um, And so what was that? Was that a formative time for you? Too? Yeah, that was really, I mean, it was really challenging on a personal level I, I it was I wasn't expecting the um the kind of misery of sort of loneliness and the isolation of uh, being in a different culture but more than anything else that isolation of not speaking the language and I felt like I'd I felt like I had a limb chopped off and uh, in fact I made a lot of work about um being disabled and uh, I did I did a whole series of blindfolded self-portraits. I was doing drawings with my feet. So it came out of this idea that you couldn't communicate. Yeah, yeah, right. being, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, and, and also out of this sort of really intense sort of subjectivity that was sort of, that sort of descended upon me because, because I was isolated and I was in a different culture, you're sort of thrown back on yourself. So the self-portrait thing became this real, really strong abiding theme. And then the other thing that really became became a, a theme um, was the idea of landscape and not landscape but the idea of landscape so I wasn't going out and drawing or painting landscapes I was doing sort of drawings of imaginary landscapes um, landscapes that represented a culture's idea of itself and that seemed that seemed you know particularly coming from Australia where we've had you know, a young country with a with that's had to sort of run fast to catch up with its idea of cultural identity and and a culture that has that where the visual arts and particularly painting has always been very sort of um, primary um, as an art form and this history of depicting ourselves and defining ourselves through landscape painting. Do you think it took you? Um, it, it, it took going to Germany to, to sort mm. of tap into that? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I had to be taken out of the country to actually see the country for a start. Mm. And my interests, you know, when I was in Australia were, were much more international. And once I found myself in an international context, I, I was sort of overcome with nostalgia and homesickness <laughs> and sort of, and, uh, and it was, you know, and, I, and I, my personal circumstances were horrific. I couldn't get a, because I'd arrived without following the due processes I didn't have a student visa and when I went to see if I could get a student visa I was told by a rather nice man that um, um, I had 30 seconds to get out of the building otherwise I would be arrested because I'd come in illegally and 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 I and why, I was standing there saying, but can't I just sort of, you know, apply? And he said, you now have 15 seconds. And uh, his hand hovering over the bell, so I just I ran for it. But, but that meant I couldn't, um, in Germany, particularly in those days, it might still be the case of it. Um, but then it was sort of vestiges of post-war sort of police state, really. You, you, you couldn't live anywhere unless you had... Um, 
you'd taken your visa to the police station and sort of, you know, got, got signed off. So, so I was an illegal immigrant and I ended up in an in a uninsulated attic um, in the red light district next to the state, state brothel, living with, sharing one toilet with four Turkish families. And no, and, you know, I think I did have running water. I had a tap and a sink, but that was it. Right. Well, you know what? I wonder whether that actually um, made you hone in on your art you know oh absolutely yeah and 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 the other thing was that you know the art that you know I thought I thought I thought I was going to Germany where this was so early 80s it's sort of um you know Immendorf and uh we hadn't seen that much of Richter but he was definitely around and and um but uh, Marcus Lupitz and sort of the German neo-expressionists and you've got the trans-avant-garde guys it, it's all I thought I was coming to this sort of very sophisticated sort of postmodernist um, discourse and actually it wasn't like that at all. They were sort of kind of just lost in their own emotions and sort of <laughs> struggling with their, with their own sort of historical sort of um, issues and, and it was very inaccessible for me. I mm. really, yeah, and I, it's so I, I was sort of flung back on myself because I couldn't, join in on a conversation. If I'd gone to America, if I'd gone to RISD, it would have been a whole other story. That was very much a discourse that was accessible, but this wasn't. And so the language barrier, the cultural barrier, the whole... So you sort of end up, you know, yeah. Isolated. Um, yeah. Uh, throwing back on yourself. But the one thing that I did learn from them was this, the sort of the... Well, it was something I'd already been told um, but had rejected it. Uh, arguably at the National Art School, but was this this abs- absolute um, the paramount importance of the f- of formal values and, but in a more, uh, in a more it was a kind of a subjective formalism. It was it was it was a strange strange thing. Mm. When you say formal values, you're talking about things like you know composition, composition, colour, and, and texture, you know, mark making, and um, uh, yeah. Uh, materials, you know, what you're actually working on. It's not just canvas. You know, there's a, there's 30 different canvases and they all have different ways of affecting the mark and, and there's the paint's not just paint and, you know, there's thin paint, thick paint and yeah, right. runny paint and, right. you know, these are sort of things that that um, you sort of, you, you, you get an inkling of when you're in art school but there's so much else going on that you're really not, you're probably just grabbing the first thing that comes to hand. Mm. And also as an Australian back then, um, uh, my exposure to actual objects was limited. You know, there was a few great things in the art ground in New South Wales um, and uh, the occasional foray to another state gallery but that was it. Yeah, and I suppose uh, we're talking about pre pre computers as well because you couldn't go well, online. Well, even you know, computers don't really give you that physicality. You can't really un- truly understand an object until you're actually standing, you know, breathing the same air as it. You know, mm. so and in fact, when I did get into the Kunst Academy, um, which was complicated because I needed to be, they have a prof- professorial s- system, so you need to. I needed to find a professor that was prepared to take me in and they only have seven or eight people in their class and they generally take one or two per year and they kind of keep them for sort of five to seven years. So so the chances of a professor saying to me, yeah, come in, take some other person's place, 
just for one year and then clear off. I mean, it was it wasn't going to happen. But I was lucky enough to find um, yarn divots, the um, um, Dutch. Uh, how would you describe it? Sort of kind of sort of conceptual photographer, and uh, I suppose um, had just started teaching. So he had a whole empty classroom, and he 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 was bringing in twelve or fourteen students rather than just one or two. And he said. Yeah, sure, come and, you know, sit in. But he, he said, honestly, you don't really need to be here. You're not going to learn anything really. Um, you'll learn more from – I mean, I had been studying for years at this point and uh, he said, honestly, at this point you'd learn more you, – you, you'd learn just as much by working at home in your studio. So he said, I'll take you in on the condition that you spend um, at least half of the next 12 months travelling around uh, Europe and visiting museums. Because that's the one thing you haven't had and that's the one place you'll learn, learn from. So that, you know, gave me a completely different vision of what paintings really were mm. when you've been looking at reproductions in books and then you see the actual thing. So you're talking about like sort of France and Italy? Oh, yeah, National Gallery in London and more up to Scotland. And, um, but, uh, you know, Prado, unbelievable, um, Germany, um, Rijksmuseum. Mm. So what? Okay. So after an experience like that for a year, what was it like coming back to Sydney? Well, I think the thing I, I, I sort of had a, I had an idea that um, it was important uh, for to travel, and and it was important for Australian artists to to try to create something outside of Australia because I'd been taught by people who'd. Uh, at the National Arts School who'd had sort of stellar careers in their 20s and early 30s and were by their 40s sort of teaching full-time and not even exhibiting. Um, And that wasn't just through choice. It was really through a lack of interest. The market was so small it seemed, you know, in the early 80s that there wasn't enough – there weren't enough collectors, there wasn't enough economy uh, in the art world to sustain an artist throughout their career. And – the thing that really struck me when I did get to Europe was that not only could this happen, but actually you could have a, a, a massive career. This is because these guys are, you know, they're, they're doing shows everywhere. They're really, um, they're operating on a level that Australian artists weren't. And so you sort of thought, well, you know, I'm, an, I'm not expecting that, but it'd be great to have a little bit of that. It'd be great to be able to make a living as an artist and, and not um, and not have to be constantly worrying about supplementing your income and then not being able to travel when you wanted and so on. And did that mean uh, you couldn't limit yourself to Australia in a sense? Uh, it just sort of meant I think that I just had this idea that it would be great if I could have something else going on there. It was like an insurance policy, you know, that you might have a – that you're – you know your boundaries, and and of course it's stimulating, it's exciting. There's a lot of stuff going on that wasn't that wasn't making it back to Australia, or was making it back to Australia, but through some weird filters, and you didn't quite understand. Then you get you get to New York, and I mean New York was a revelation. I spent some time there on the way to Germany, and was desperate to go back there, so I did. Mm. Um, I just so I just immediately started making plans to spend more time overseas. So whenever there was an opportunity to travel again and try and do a show, I, I, I took it. Yeah. So the so you were sort of based in Sydney. I think you yeah. moved to the Blue Mountains. We moved to the Blue Mountains, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And by this stage you'd met your wife, so Adrienne Gaha. We'd met at art school, uh, at National Art School, and then... She's a painter. She's a painter. Yeah. 
And uh, at one point we were both at Sydney College um, uh, and had been together since sort of 83. So you must have both decided that you wanted to live this life where you were going to be travelling. I don't think I ever did. No. no? She was she was just putting up with it really. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure she didn't mind it but it wasn't. She, was, she didn't feel any great compulsion to spend time out of Australia. In fact, I think she missed it a lot when she wasn't right. wasn't in it. Um, I, I was much more sort of, I, I had the sort of wanderlust. She didn't have it really. I just wanted to jump forward to a time when you were in, in living in London for a while and I wanted to talk specifically about it, some, some paintings that really caught my eye, which I really um, thought were quite stunning, and they were the canal paintings. Oh, okay. And, uh, in fact, in the National Gallery of Victoria, there's a beautiful five-panelled um, oh, yes. work. Oh, yes, yeah, Fantasy Eccler. Yeah, yeah Fantasy Eccler, mm. which mm. is... So, basically, these canal paintings are... Um, I mean, for the listener, it's basically if you you were in the canal and you were looking out, you'd sort of be seeing these, you know, you'd have these towering sort of sides of the canal, which are quite dark, and then the light um, coming towards you from afar. So in other words, there's like three bands of paint and the central band is this blinding light. And, I mean, if if you didn't know it was a canal that you were talking about, it would look like purely abstract sort of work really. Um, but, you know, which I think with your work... Um, even the sort of supposed abstract works, they really do have some basis in representation. Yeah, and that was a very deliberate um, kind of ploy really and, the, and they're a perfect example. Um, so those, those strips of light that, from that show Canal um, were definitely referring to some of the, those sort of 19th century architectural structures and the sort of the dark bridges and the light coming through. Um, but they've all got this sort of kind of shimmery, um, they sort of dissolve as, as the light, this band of light goes down. So the implication is that, that it's a strip of light that's reflected in water. And then as soon as you start thinking that, then you start reading the forms on either side as, or the, the shapes on either side as forms, and that this is an opening that you might be travelling through, and they become sort of three-dimensional suddenly there's sort of a space in there but so the kind of conceit if you like was that it was a Barnett Newman zip you know the Newman paintings were just flat stained canvas just a white you know a a line of a lighter line running down through a through a dark ground um who was a sort of a paradigm of modernism and and it was all those paintings were all about flatness so I was sort of taking the ultimately flat sort of an icon of ultimate flatness and um, and reconfiguring it as something that which could be seen in the landscape in three dimensions that could create a sense of light and form and space and and um, so you get this strange you know it's it's it is very formless it's very um, it, it's it's very minimalist and it's very flat but at the same time there's this sort of kind of compulsion to read it as as something that you could almost imagine walking into so that paradox was was important and, and I was I was doing other works that sort of had the same with us with the same intent uh, for example Joseph Alba's homage to the square series the square within the square I reconfigured that um it's a dark a lighter square within a dark square and but the bottom of the square is sort of all sort of ripply and you realise it could actually be a railway bridge over a canal, which is in fact the sort of source of the imagery. And so 
and then use that sort of symbol, if you like, as a, as a sort of simple device within which I could then explore different colour combinations and whatever. So it very much in that very formal way. So they were sort of formal investigations that were very mod- modernistic but, but, but also with this reference to the world and which was sort of undermining that sort of, if you like, the sort of what I saw as a sort of fairly pompous ideology of, of, um, of formalism. Yeah, that's interesting um, that you're, you've got reference to these artists because that continues through where, you know, if we jump forward to the flower paintings, uh, which you started in the early 90s, and I think you won the Moet and Chandon Fellowship with one of those paintings. Um, and, and, of course, this is a motif that you're very well known for, these flowers. Yeah. And, and so I wanted to talk about how that started off. Um, yeah. Well, interestingly, they were pretty much um, concurrent. So the canal paintings were done uh, for an exhibition at Chisenhale Gallery in London, which was actually situated on a canal. The back of the gallery um, was, in fact, the wall of the canal. Oh, yeah. And um, my initial proposal was that we just cut some slits in the wall and we could sort of have the canal coming coming <laughs> through. They didn't like that. Uh, so I painted I painted it sort of, a, if you like, the, the, the paintings were representations of that idea. And what, while I was still in that um, space uh, working upstairs above the gallery in, in the, one of the studios I had there, um, I, I started doing these flower um, imagery. So it was, and it was, a, it, it, it was a kind of a, I think the current word is pivot, um, and uh, I think I pivoted because the landscape work that had been going on for quite some years and had started in Germany um, uh, had ended up being so minimal and sort of reductive that I felt there wasn't any, anywhere else to go. Mm. And so I decided I'd go to somewhere which was the complete, the 180 of that. So rather than taking an abstract painting, a, a very rigorous abstract um, painting like a Barnett Newman or Joseph Albers and and naturalising it, making it illusionistic and three-dimensional, I would take a painting which was the height of naturalism and illusionism, which was Dutch still life painting, and try and abstract it. So so I, by going in on those, a tiny little detail of maybe sort of a couple of centimetres square and then blowing it up to something which was a couple of metres square, four metres square, Mm. Um, um, so that the image, you know, so you still got that play between illusion and abstraction in both cases. It's just it's been reversed. Yes. So you, yeah. So you take quite small reproductions. So would they? They'd be colour reproductions. I yeah, take it. But often in those days, it wasn't that easy to find reproductions. You had to, you know, you could find a book in a secondhand bookshop, or maybe you pick up a postcard in a museum or something. Um, and so if it's a postcard, it's pretty small anyway and it's and if you're taking a tiny detail of, of a Dutch still life painting, which is often a large bouquet with, I don't know, 50 flowers in it and you're, I'm only really interested in one, so I'm, I'm zooming, or two, I'm zooming down to something very, very small, you know, maybe a centimetre. And, and that's pretty, you know, once you actually get the magnifying glass out, there's not much to see. Um, and then, but that would just be, it would be, I was sort of looking for compositions. I was looking for, and I, and I was a bit sick of straight lines, to be honest with you. I've been doing, you know, canals and horizons and <laughs> bridges and everything was pretty geometric. And I wanted to, I, I was, you know, I, 
and I was definitely sick of the idea of sort of land and sky and sort of, you know, um, there are a lot of formal constraints in landscape and, uh, and I wanted to sort of mix everything up. Well, I suppose you could bring colour in too. So you could bring in colour, you could bring in curves, you could bring in um, uh, unlikely forms because if you zoom in on it, so those those flower bouquets are all pretty frontal, so you know there wasn't a sort of an, an idea that there was a base and a, and a top. So you can have forms descending and things coming from the side and everything going off, and the idea that the, that the composition extends beyond the the so they become very expansive and and very fluid and very dynamic and and very unrestrictive as well because unlike say portraiture where you have to be very precise as you know um, and the merest millimeter can completely change the look of the face you can lose the likeness you know yeah, with the totally. sort of merest sort of you know kind of tremor of a brush. Yeah. When it comes to painting a flower, you really you can do whatever you like, you know, honestly. I mean, especially if it's a flower that was, you know, 300 years old. I mean, who's to say <laughs> whether that petal should be there or somewhere else? So I could be pretty fast and loose and it yeah. did feel pretty liberating, yeah. Well, I suppose you'd also uh, have to be careful with your cropping because you'd have to make sure the composition worked, I presume. Yes, yeah, so... So that was the fun thing, I, I think, in a way, was that you could kind of get an instant composition by cropping. I just had now I, nowadays I do it on a computer with a kind of you know crop tool on Photoshop. But then I just had a couple of little L's, you know, cut out of paper, and and you could sort of make them bigger and smaller and change the shape from square to, and just move in and and just hunt around. So I'd spend you know days just. Um, and then, and then having found it, of course, now you could just take a photo on your phone or something, but then uh, I'd, I'd then have to sort of make a little note and draw a little sketch on a, you know, on a, on a post-it note and stick it in the book. So I'd sort of had the composition sort of recorded yes, in a way. Right. Um, but that was, yeah, but that, that was the fun of it. So you're sort of, you're going into this world. It's almost like you're flying. I've gone back to the little spaceship, um, Greenberg's spaceship, I think he said, uh, uh, Clement Greenberg said, um, "When in this in in this kind of group attempt to sort of eliminate uh, this group attempt to achieve ultimate flatness, and somebody said, uh, I can't I forget who it was. Someone said, oh, well, you you well, you can't walk, you can't walk into so and so's paintings.' And he said, yes, but you could fly a spaceship into it, I think. And so the, so it was a bit of a failure by his standards because you could still go in, you know, and they were just after everything sitting on the surface." Somehow. Um, but, um, yeah, I was interested in flying in and I felt like I could sort of zoom in and out with this sort of process of cropping and, and find worlds within worlds. Well, it's also interesting that um, it's, a, it's a limitation as well. So imposing limitations sometimes frees you up in a way, yep. doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think it's the case with any sort of found imagery and, and this is really what this was. This was just a sort of except rather than working from, you know, popular magazines like the pop artists of the 60s. I was working from books and postcards. But, um, but they, they're found images and then you have a certain detachment because you, you're not directly connected to the subject matter. It's already been mediated. It's already been processed. It's already been painted and repainted and photographed and printed and reprinted. And, mm. and oh, I think you've said that, that that degeneration that occurs as a result of that is quite important for that work. 
it was important for that work and also it was very much, I think, a uh, that was really coming out of a real Australian sense, postmodernist sensibility. We, postmodernism was all about um, uh, this idea of reproduction and mediation and how meaning kind of changes and um, can can degrade or turn into something else. And, and as Australians... Um, on the far side of the world, we were really like the kind of the last recipients. We were at the end of the chain of, of Chinese whispers by the time things got to us. And so I think, you know, we, we embraced in the 80s um, um, postmodernist culture in Australia really embraced this idea of sort of distance and, and, and filters and, and how, um, how meaning changed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not so much the fact that they're flowers, really. The idea that you have been painting flowers for so long, it's not really the flower that is the important thing about your work. Do you, or how do you feel about it? I would say that for a very long time I would have agreed with you. Um, and, and, and I think for a long time it wasn't, the, it wasn't about flowers really at all. Um, it was just really a convenient subject matter. Um, there were elements in those early Dutch, uh, early paintings based on Dutch still lifes that, that were quite pointedly referring to the symbolism behind those early flower paintings, the idea that they were memento mori, that they were reminders of death and decay, that beauty was fleeting, um, you know, that nature was beautiful, um, but, but nothing lasted forever except for arguably, you know, God and we needed to, you know, there were sort of reminders that we need to take, you know, not not get um, too caught up in the in the physical world. I, I think, mm. um, but at the same time, they were an amazing celebration of the physical world. So they were quite sort of there was a strange um, ambivalence there. Um, I think I I was actually responding quite genuinely to that, and in fact, a lot of the titles and those those early works were referring were playing on that. Um, the titles that I gave my paintings. Um, at the same time, um, I sort of tried to maintain a sort of studied detachment um, and people would say, well, what is that flower? And I, honestly, I, I couldn't have answered anyway, even, even if I wanted to and I didn't want to. I mean, for me, it was just that was just an interesting curve or a colour or a, a blaze of red against a sort of um, slice of green and how do I, how, how could I get all these things to sit down on the canvas and, and work together Um and it was a way of um, finding ready-made compositions that gave me sort of freedom and allowed me to be really quite loose and at the same time make something which looked recognisable because that was the important thing, was to maintain the illusion and the sense of kind of coherence um, but at the same time have something which was free and breaking down and dissolving and I was using a lot of solvent and big brushes so that the paint almost felt like it was running off the canvas um, so, but they were as much about paint as they were the subject matter, I think. I think it's become apparent with this current show that I've got on at Martin Brown's in Sydney that, the, um, that I've actually got a, a much more sort of emotional relationship with the subject matter in this case. And I really am not just looking at the flowers, but thinking about the flowers. Um, when I st started the work for this show, it was back in September and I had had this kind of, I think I'd been spending a lot of time looking at earlier work of mine because 
I was in the process of packing a lot of stuff up that was in France in, and in storage and moving it out to Australia. So I was going through old things and photographing them and cataloging them and just sort of revisiting the ideas, I suppose. And, and that had got me, that had sort of taken me down some sort of old world, you know, world trampled roots and some other ones that were a bit overgrown. And, um, and I was looking at that early Dutch subject matter again and realising how much I love those paintings that I'd been looking at and working from. And, and I, anyway, I had this idea that it might be fun to remake one, um, to go back to some of that early Im- imagery um, and, and try to paint it uh, in a different way from the way I have been working recently. So not a strict colour separation, but not necessarily going back to the way I painted those paintings back in the 90s either because I'm not I'm not sure that I would be able to and and you know and but but somehow find some sort of hybrid um between the two processes and then so I then started looking at again at more um, Dutch still life reference material discovered that there's a whole lot online that you could get these fantastic high-res images online that the auction houses make available um and so I was able to actually see these these old paintings in a way that I'd never seen them in, in super high res blown up uh, massively. So you can see every little crack in the, in the paint and those little insects that had been sort of like fuzzy little kind of warm glows uh, were now sort of, you know, had all their legs and wings and, and everything was sort of flung into sort of relief. And so I think that, that sort of changed the way that I had to think about painting them because I sort of, I guess I got a little bit more into the detail and, um, found some smaller brushes and, and became a little bit more fastidious about how I was applying the paint in some regards. They're, they're still pretty loose in other ways. Um, but also got me thinking about the actual subject matter itself again. And I'd initially been very um, taken, as I said, by the by the, the metaphoric quality of those early Dutch still lives and how they, they were sort of symbols for... Um, death and decay and our, our mortality, if you like. Um, but now they didn't seem so metaphorical. They seemed, it seemed it wasn't just nature standing in for our mortality, but actually nature itself was arguably mortal. We, it seemed to be, you know, um, extinction events were happening all around us and um, we were all uh, at risk of not surviving um, so there was sort of they, the subject matter, the, the, the intent behind the subject matter seemed um, quite compelling. And, and then as, as I went through the process of making the works for the show, we, we went from a general environmental malaise to really specific bushfire disaster in Australia and then um, in the last few months, COVID, so where we're all sort of... Um, uh, at threat, um, humans, animals, uh, little insects. Yeah, totally. So the idea of vulnerability um, and and the, and the sort of preciousness of and and beauty of 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 nature is all um, and of life itself has all seemed really sort of resonant and appropriate. Yeah, it is. It is amazing that you were painting during that whole period. That this whole body of work has, has come out of that period. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more about the. Um, the the colour separation technique that you developed after those initial Dutch still life 
sort of type of paintings. Um, can you tell me a bit about how I think that came out of printmaking, didn't it? It did. Can you tell me a bit about that and, and how it developed? Well, I made my first print um, outside of any things I made at art school um, with Neil Levison at the what was then the Victorian Print Workshop, became the Australian Print Workshop. And oh. Neil became the director, the first director. Um, and we had a fantastic relationship and I, I, I made a number of prints um, with him through the 80s and early 90s until he sadly died very young. Um, and... I was kind of entranced with this, um, with the kind of game of making a colour print through using, you know, the minimum number of colours because obviously um, every time you added a colour you were adding time and time is money and um, printmaking was an expensive process in the it well it still is but particularly if you're making lithographs so so if you could the more you could achieve with the less number of colors the less number of plates the the more um the more economic economical the, the print was the, um, the more chance you could make another one and uh but also the more satisfying in a way because you because you kind of um it's like a game it's like a, it's like it's it's like the jigsaw puzzle you know trying to get everything into place so oh, so, so we're talking about lithography aren't we we are talking sorry oh. it was a lithograph color lithograph oh, color lithograph so that's for people who might not know that is a layering process so you would start would it start with a black and white no but you're often drawing in black and white because in fact what you're doing is just recording tone um so where it's black you're going to get um um, 100% tone and where it's white you're not going to get any ink if you like mm -hmm. and then and then you can ink that um, drawing that, that's then etched in some way either on the stone or on a plate depending on what you're working on and that there's a there's a kind of chemical process which I'm completely sort of still to this day don't understand but happily that wasn't my business I'd, I'd do the drawing and then Neil and his team would come in and do all the hard hard uh, processing yeah. but then that, so once that's all fixed on your plate or your stone um that can that that can then be rolled up in any colour. So you could be rolling it up in yellow, magenta, cyan, green, purple, whatever you like, um, and and printed onto paper. So so the idea with the colour etching, um, if you're trying to achieve sort of the full range of the spectrum in a print, would be to try to get um, all of those colours by just using three or four plates. So traditionally in commercial printing, it's yellow, magenta cyan and black and um the way neil presented it to me he said well think about it as yellow red and blue i think um and he said you might get he said you know you might get there and i wanted to make a full color thing and and he said well you might get there in four you sometimes people have to go to five and you know and i was thinking yeah but in theory you could do it in three you know <laughs> i don't think i ever did but um uh but that was always sort of the the, the goal um and so the white in the image is the white of the paper yeah which is a kind of whole new concept to me in a way um in terms of the way i'd been working which was with quite opaque um quite opaque paint up to that point um and then you're using transparent inks and uh in thin layers and the yellows and the well, I think we're all familiar with the concept. Mm. Um, you can create the secondary and tertiary colours through those 
through those colours. But the concept's one thing and, the, and putting it into practice is a whole other thing. So, um, and I, I, yeah, and I, anyway, I, I started, it didn't take long for that, those sort of investigations and printmaking to start to transfer to my painting. I started using much thinner paint um, and fight, seeking out more transparent pigments and letting the white of the canvas come through. And so that sort of blinding light that you were talking about in those canal paintings is really that. That's just actually the sort of luminosity of the of the canvas coming through the thin layers ah, of paint. right, yes. Um, and so that meant, that sort of really changed the whole way I approached putting paint down. Well, that, that, that basically developed into you um, using this process where you would do, do layers of like yellow, then... Yeah, exactly. Magenta. Eventually, the ultimate, yeah, the sort of the ultimate challenge is to try to make a, a, a color separation painting rather than a print. Um, and um, you know, there's various reason, technical reasons, which I won't bore you with, why that is that is doesn't work so well with paint. Um, and and I, I had a number of attempts and, and, and failed. And and then quite independently, I was doing a whole other series of works concurrent with the flower paintings, that the early, earlier flower paintings that we're talking about, where I was just splashing solvent into um, thin layers of paint and then using dry brush to remove the loosened paint and creating these strange texture effects, which were a bit sort of trompe l'oeil, a bit... Again, it was sort of, you know, illusionistic but abstract. They sort of look like moonscapes yes, sort yeah, of a thing. Exactly. Um, and they looked like they might be a sort of micro on photography image or something taken from a satellite or didn't quite know where. It seemed to have some kind of um, basis in reality but not. But was also very loose and abstract. And, and it occurred to me that actually that splashing and removing a paint was the way that I could, I, I could apply that to the idea of colour separation and that would give me pure, more pure colour because what was happening was the layers of the colours on, on top of on top of each other would sort of, even if the paint was transparent, it, um, would cancel each other out. Yeah. You actually need to have white or you need to have, you know, absence of colour to let the other colours come through. So the splashing of the solvent is really key. So it's not just a sort of a kind of a whimsical gesture. It's actually really fundamental yeah. to the colour working together. Yeah. Well, I, I was amazed that you were able to use that technique with... Um, well, actually, I should point out, first of all, that when you were doing these works you were using your own photography. So you were doing your your photography yeah. at that point. So things like berries, very close-up berries and mm. flowers. Yeah. And yeah, fruit and things and you know, grapes and, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but you also um, did portraits. Yeah. Which were really successful. And, I, I, I mean, you. I think the reason I was so surprised, I'm so surprised at that, is... To get skin tones, I thought I thought would be quite difficult in, with that sort of process. It really is very difficult. <laughs> I could, that was the hardest thing, actually. Was uh, it? Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned to you earlier that it's very challenge, challenging. Light. It's very hard to deal with light values with this, um, you know, areas that are, that are light in colour um, with this sort of three colour process because the tendency is always to go a little bit too dark. Mm. But by the time you've gone a bit too dark with the yellow and then you kind of had to compensate with the magenta to sort of even it out and then you need to then get the cyan in to get the right colour that you want. You might get the right colour but tonally it might be way too, way too dark. So that was, you know, so skin's pretty challenging. Is it a bit of a, if you don't get it right the first time, you're going to be in trouble down the track? Yeah. 
Absolutely. But you don't, you have to go quite a long way down the track before you realize that you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get lost quite early, but you actually only realize you're lost when you're, when you're sort of a, you know, a couple of days in, you know, and then it's a long way back from there. So, yeah. Well, um, I, was, I was saying to, I think we were getting to it when we were talking in the gallery, that you must use a totally different thought process than an artist who is mixing colours on his palette is using a totally different thought process to what you are thinking about when you're looking at a colour that you want to replicate. Well, I'm sort of, to be honest with you, I'm sort of following a kind of a, a roadmap and I'm just, um, which is the colour separations that I would make on my computer before I start. Ah, uh, okay, um, yep. So you'd have three different... I'd have three black and white printouts yep. showing me how much tone in each colour I would require. So oh, that's all okay. pretty mechanical. The thing is I'm not a so, – and I would then try and reproduce that as close as possible. Um, but I'm not a machine. That makes it complicated. The other thing that makes – you know, so I'm going to get it wrong. If you look at a um, – so if I've got my black and white printout of the yellow layer and I can see in that area there's a grey that's representing – kind of somewhere that's roughly sort of, say, 50%. In fact, you could go with, back to the image with your computer and run the cursor over it and, and see exactly how much yellow is supposed to be there. Really? But it's kind of meaningless information because if it says 57%, what does 57% yellow look like? Exactly. You know? um, and especially when you've got a whole lot of white around it, Mm. You know, 30% yellow is going to look like 60% yellow. Yeah. So when you put some dark yellow around it, suddenly, <laughs> the 50, you know, so it's very, so just being tonally accurate, um, if, you, if one could be, you could arguably do a pretty um, perfect reproduction of the, of the photo, but, but in reality you don't. Well, you don't you, want that. Neither could nor or would care to. Well, I must say with yellow, it must be very hard to do a tonal painting with yellow because it's so light. You can't really see it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've seen some of that. You've posted photos on Instagram with the yellow layer and I thought, oh, my God, that how you would get the darkest area versus the lightest area is, is, is quite difficult. And then it, gets more, then it gets harder when you're doing the next colour layer because you've already got the yellow there. Exactly. So you're trying to put your kind of 40% magenta down over and it looks completely <laughs> different when it goes over a yellow bit than, as opposed to a white bit. So, by the, yeah. and so by the time you've got the magenta down, you could be way off, yeah, right. of course. <laughs> Um, but it could still be looking kind of okay, and then and then and then comes the cyan layer, and that's when you really realise that you know actually that's not purple anymore, that's brown, you know, yes. or or the only way I can make that purple is to go, um, or make that not brown is to go is to go so hard with the blue that it actually ends up black, but then tonally it doesn't work with. Uh, with, you know, that doesn't, I, I don't want that to be black because visually it's going to be jumping forward or falling, you know. So, you, there's, so you're sort of juggling between where you're hoping to go and, and where you can still go. And where you can still go is often actually quite a, a, a very small space that you have to find and negotiate your way towards. Well, and also um, in between those processes, you've got the splashing of the solvent. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to make it really kind of unpredictable and random. Yeah, yeah. And you'd have to wait for it to be a certain consistency, the paint, for it. Yeah. For that to work. Yes, and and for for a long time. So yes, basically, there's a point halfway between sort of wet and dry where it it you can, the solvent will land on the paint surface and not just run straight off, and it'll sort of sit there and sort of bead up if you like, and then I can with a, a dry brush I can pass across and just remove the 
loosened bit of paint underneath the drop of solvent mm. with a dry brush without actually taking away everything. Yeah. Um, and and what tends to happen is the brush, that little droplet of paint deposits on on the back end of the stroke, if you know what I mean. So as, as, as brush passes across, it sort of all accumulates on one side and it creates this weird illusion of a shadow, which is quite mm. quite cool. Um, and that's how I sort of came to be making these splashy solvent things in the first place. Um, yeah. So there's a sort of sweet spot, but obviously, you know, the bits you started painting early are going to be drier than the bits, you, the last bits you did. So you've got to think about that. And for quite a long time, I thought, because I wanted to make the process apparent I really wanted to show the yellow the magenta and the cyan layers as somehow uh independent and and still visible within the whole thing um uh so that a viewer could arguably look at the picture and see the magenta layer underneath the cyan layer and the yellow layer underneath that well actually that's a pipe dream that doesn't work but I, I had I had this sort of aspiration if you like and I also had a sort of a, a kind of a um, uh, an ethos that that um, uh, they should be contiguous as each layer should be a sort of a thing in itself I, I uh, and the splashing should be one splash throughout the entire thing that meant I had to paint the whole layer in the day or even less than a day because otherwise I'd paint an area, splash it, and I could come back the next day and paint another area, splash that, and it would not be the same splash and you wouldn't, yeah. you know. So so it got to the point where I was painting painting some enormous paintings which were sort of two metres by five metres and literally doing the colour layer each day. In, oh, my God. And then I ended up, you know, under the physiotherapist for quite some <laughs> Quite some months, basically. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's a very physical type of yeah, work that you do. Was, well, that was insane. That was that was madness. But I'm not quite so mad as that. I now, I'll, I'll now allow myself the luxury of doing a colour layer over a couple of days. Oh, will you? Yeah, yeah. Because actually, <laughs> I realised no one, you can't see it, and yeah. no one. I'm the only person that cares, and uh, yeah. and uh, even I can't necessarily see what's going on in the yellow layer. Well, it's interesting because this ties up with the idea of risk as well. You know, taking risk, losing control, which a lot of artists talk about. Um, do you deliberately put things up for yourself so that you have got a loss of control in a way? Um, not yes, I suppose not that. Not that I'm seeking a loss of control, but I'm 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 definitely trying to make it harder to regain control. Put it that way, because maybe the maybe the excitement is in this sort of the you know the the plan is is in a spin, but you're trying to get that. <laughs> you're, try, you're wrestling with the controls, and you're trying to sort of straighten it out before you hit the ground. And um, uh, I'm not really interested in crashing. So yeah, yeah, right. uh, I mean, no one is, of course. But but um, I'm I don't I I don't want to just to be I, I was I never felt comfortable with sort of pure subject subjectivity and chance. Um, I've always wanted to have um, a play between between the random and the and the manageable so um, uh, and then went and, and often you know having formulated 
something which is going to make it difficult for me, then I spent a lot of time and energy trying to sort of master the difficulty. Mm. And once, and that can take some time, that can take months or years. And then once one has done that, then one starts to feel unsatisfied because it's actually too, it's all too kind of within my grasp and too kind of conscious and the results are too predictable. So I have to find another way of, of um, upending everything and making it hard again. Well, do you find that you you can find those that sort of difficulty in printmaking a lot yeah. of the time? Absolutely, yeah. Because you don't really know what's going to happen in the end. Is that the sort of difficulty about it? What What is it about printmaking you think that's appealing? Um, definitely that. You don't know what you're going to get. And when you do get it, you've put in an awful lot of time and energy. It's um, it's seriously laborious and, uh, and it can be heartbreaking if it doesn't work. Um, so then you, you sometimes have to make some pretty radical kind of corrective measures to sort of try and pull the thing back. Um you mean at, at the end, like after it's printed? Well, when you, you know, you've done your fourth plate, which is the one that's supposed to pull it all together and actually all it does is just punch a big hole in it and it's, you're heading for the bottom and you need to make a fifth plate or change the colours or go back and rethink the order or, you know, what can we do now to rescue this thing? But there's a sort of an, there's, there's a sort of an instant and immediacy on another level. It's laborious to make, but then you, the actual applying of the colour is kind of, instant you know you, you do all that work you can't see what you've got you ink up the plate down it goes bang and it's a sort of a it's you know for better or for worse it's a sort of you know it's a do kind of a, yeah it's you know it's exciting and um whereas when you're painting you're constantly making little sort of value judgments about where how does that look how does that look there i'm not sure about that age i don't think that's quite um so um the so you're sort of, yeah, you're, you're constantly, um, you know, flying the plane. Then there's another thing which is monoprinting, which, is, which, I, which I really loved and I've done quite a lot of because you've sort of got the, you've got the surprise of the, of the sudden appearance of the image on the paper and on the other the colours working together, but it's much faster to generate the imagery because you can just paint quickly on a plate and print it on rather than actually preparing, you know, drawing and etching and... and inking and rolling and stuff so that's um and that's that the sort of the mono printing is something that i've done a lot of and and have returned to from time to time and that's got that sort of surprise and freedom and control and lack of control sort of well i suppose also you can use more opaque colors too you could you? but i'm not really interested in that yeah. so no. you always you do you always only use transparent colors well uh, I have used opaque colour when I when I have totally stuffed up, and I've had to sort of you know redraw a curve or something, and I've lost the white of the canvas. You know, I could sort of sneakily go in there with a bit of white paint <laughs> and sort of just do a little bit of, but yeah. I, but I sort of hate doing it, and and I and I know that you know the more I do that, the more you lose the sort of the the luminosity of the of the transparent colour, and the and the paintings become something else. They lose their sort of. They sort of lose their zest, really. You know, they, they become kind of more, there's more, what's the word? You know, there's more gravitas somehow. Mm. They sort of feel, they sort of, gravitas isn't the right word either. They just sort of feel, they sort of, they, they, no, they just sort of become a bit more stolid somehow, you know. I mean, it's not that they're bad. Um, they sort of feel quite serious. I, I, I sort of, 
I often use sporting analogy to talk about my painting process, <laughs> and uh, um, but because there is a sort of a sense of a game, and when you sort of set these goals out, and then and and then you know when it all works, it sort of can feel effortless, and that's what that's what I that's what I want. I don't want to be labouring away with a little brush, you know, correcting and tweaking. It's sort of just go for it and try and get it in three. It's interesting because it's it's so much like watercolor painting in a way. Absolutely, isn't it? yeah, high risk and high reward, and um, and then the ones that really work are sort of so gestural and sort of so fluid and so fresh and kind of miraculous. You sort of think, you know, yeah. what could be more beautiful than that? I think this show is absolutely stunning. I, we were there this. We were there today, and. Um, uh, there's something about it. I was saying, I was saying to you earlier that um, you know there's a difference between seeing it, viewing it from afar, and viewing it close up, because you do get to appreciate all those, you know, those splashes of the solvent and and the brush marks. It's just such a beautiful way that you've treated the subject matter. It's it's got a especially for other painters. I think other painters will love seeing that show. Well, I, I hope so, and and I and I hope I. Hope other painters can see that show and I hope people can see that show. Um, obviously, um, uh, things are starting to open up and the gallery is now open, which is to the public, which was not a given when I was making that work. At one point I thought there wouldn't be a show at all and I was well into it. Um, and, uh, and then I, then we kind of agreed we would, we would work towards the show and the gallery was going to hang the work, but I wasn't sure who would be getting to go through the doors and um, so the timing's been good. But it it's always the way um, with um, painting it's so important to actually see the object itself and experience the scale. It's not just and, – and I'm always frustrated when I, when I see my work in reproduction because I always sort of feel it, it's just telling it's – telling, it's telling half the story and it's kind of often telling the wrong half of the story. You know, they seem quite sort of – illustrative and sort of pictorial and that you know like I mean that's the view you might get if you were just walking through the door into the room from from the far side of a of a very big room but that's not the way the paintings are meant to be experienced they're meant to be experienced you know up close and, and they're made large for a reason that's so that when you do get up close you kind of almost you lose the imagery it all starts falling down around you and everything is just dissolving into paint and that that experience is is as important as apprehending the image from afar um, I just want to, before we finish up, I just wanted to talk about um, about whether you have a routine. So when you are actually painting as opposed to um, printmaking or um, you've done video obviously in light boxes and, you know, other work that is, is not painting, but when you're actually painting, do you find um, you have a strict routine or how do you find your studio life goes? Well, I, I sort of learnt pretty early on that um, nothing happens if you don't go to the studio. So... That's the start. You've got to go to the studio. There's no guarantee that anything will happen once you're there, but at least you're there. At least there's a chance. Um, and so I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a kind of reliable at attendee of my own studio. And in, during lockdown, there was really nothing else to do. So my wife, who's also a painter, and I, were, were, we were going every day. And that was fantastic. It was great to have somewhere to go, really. Yeah. Um, so we were lucky in that respect. Um, do you share the space? Uh, 
sort of. We, we're, our, her space is directly on the other side of the wall. I can hear her actually putting the paint on the canvas. There's a sort of a thump, thump, and, you know, from time to time. Um, so, um, yeah, so we go to work together and we come home together. Um, so we were going literally seven days a week for the last last few few months, last three months, I'd say. Um, and that suits me. I quite like uh, – I've – I, I'm easily distracted, so if I'm in the studio and I and I sort of made a pact my, with myself and I'm just going to go every day, then I kind of get into that zone. Mm-hmm. Um, starting a painting is quite hard. Um, that's probably the case for a lot of artists. Um, once you get going, then they have their own momentum and then you get to a point where, um, you know, you're kind of really desperate to get to the studio to sort of see if you can resolve it and I'll be sort of thinking about it at night and you know waking up in the middle of the night and I've, these I've taken to taking photos of the painting when I leave this studio and then I'll pull my phone out at two in the morning and look at it and think oh can I do this to that or is that working um is it did it is it you know is it still there um uh so that it becomes a bit of a compulsion yeah. um so I've I've found to that end it's quite useful to have um more than one thing on the go because otherwise you sort of finish painting and then you sort of like you stop but if you can if you can sort of surreptitiously start another one while you're focusing on finishing something then you you can I can keep the I can keep the the wheels spinning that's a really good uh, really good idea yeah. um actually one last thing before um I know I said I the last thing before but one more thing that I wanted to talk about was that um probably you more than any other artist I've spoken to are very happy to talk about your process in detail. And I get the feeling that you almost want your viewer to know how you did it. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I'd like to take people's attention beyond the actual subject matter. I mean, people, you know, it's easy to kind of read a painting quite literally and say, oh, you know, nice trees or look at those pretty flowers or whatever. And that's not as we discussed what these works are really about, um, they really are about the process. And, um, and I, want to, I, want to sh- I want to make the process visible in the painting. Um, in fact, I, the ideal painting wouldn't need any ex- explanation. The process should be all evident, but I've discovered I, that's not possible. So the next best thing is to talk about it. And, uh, and I probably bore people silly, you know, because I do, I do tell them and I see their eyes glaze over um, when they're wondering what the hell is cyan and why is he going on about that. But, um, but for me that's what, um, you know, the, the, a painting is obviously an object but it is, it's also a record of an event and I'd like to show the entire event in the final painting. I want, to, I, I want every intervention of paint on canvas to be visible at the end, if, if at all possible. Um, and so, you know, it's a bit like walking on a tightrope because you make a mistake, that's going to show up too. So, um, but, uh, but it's all about, it's the opposite of concealment. Um, and, um, and, and for me, the actual, the painting when I think about a painting, when I remember a painting, I remember the making of the painting and that's sort of as valuable as the actual object itself uh, and I guess I want to share that so that's why I want to talk about it and, I, I'm, you know, in the hope that people will, will sort of catch some glimpse of, of the process 
that made it happen. Mm. Well, I highly recommend everyone listening, if they can, go and see your work at um, Martin Brown Contemporary. And congratulations on the show and thanks so much for your time today, Tim. Thanks, Maria. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim McGuire as much as I did. I'll be getting a video of Tim talking about his work onto the Talking With Painters YouTube channel in a few weeks, so watch out for that. And you can also go to the website for links to things we talked about in the show and also for images of all the paintings we talked about. Now, lockdown, or ISO as we call it in Australia, has eased in the last week or so and public art galleries all over the country are opening their doors again. So I visited the Art Gallery of New South Wales on Monday when it reopened and I was lucky enough to interview Michael Brand, who many of you will know as the director of the Art Gallery. And so have a look on Instagram and Facebook for that video. I posted it on uh, Monday the 1st of June. Good news is that the Archie, Wynn and Sulman will be on later in the year, so that is definitely something we can look forward to. I just also wanted to say thanks to everyone who joined in on the art quiz on live Instagram over the ISO period. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the winners of the seven quizzes. They were Ongo Gablogin Gallery, Lisa Maroney, Susie Q, uh, who won twice, also known as Paint Later, uh, podcast guest of John Bockor, who is a regular on the quiz. Thanks, John. Uh, Morgan Higgins and Melanie Waugh. And thanks for those of you who joined in every week, particularly since everyone knew it was incredibly unfair because it depended on your internet connection um, and whether, you know, the judges' phones picked up you as the winner or not. So it was a total lottery. Um, thanks also to podcast guest um, artist Alessandro Lu who's the owner of the Sydney Art Store, and also to artist Nicola Hart for donating such great prizes uh, at a time when people and businesses are doing it tough. I'm planning to do some more art quizzes and interviews with podcast guests on live Instagram, so I'll keep you posted on the podcast and on social media as to when that will be. And talking of social media, uh, you can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I, I spent a bit of time looking at the painting under different lights and, and I've got fluoro lights which is quite cool and I've got warmer lights and I try to get a bit of a mix that will give me something which is somewhere between daylight and what it might look like in the gallery um, with a view to trying to make something that works well under both conditions. Mm.